Good morning. Hope you had a good Thanksgiving. If you've got a Bible with you, let's go to the book of Titus. We're going to be in Titus chapter 2 today. Titus chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible with you and you'd like to follow along, there are Bibles that are there in the chair racks. And if you don't know where to find things in the Bible, that's okay. We have people with us each week that don't know where to find things in the Bible. You can find the uh, scripture passage that we're going to be looking at today on page 998 of the Bibles that are there in the chair racks in front of you. This is going to be our last uh, message in the book of Titus for the year. Um, We're not done with the book of Titus yet. We're going to start the book of Titus again next year and finish out the remaining messages that we have there. We've got several other things that we still want to talk about in the book. Uh, But next week we'll begin our Advent series called The Lantern, which uh, Pastor Joseph will have more to say about at the end of the service. And it's something that we're very excited about, excited excited to celebrate Advent with you. But this is the last one in Titus for the year. Titus chapter 2, verses 9 and 10 is where we're going to be in just a few moments when we read the scripture together. But before we get there, there's this story uh, from the very beginning of when the, the iPhone was released. The iPhone was released all the way back in 2007, which is before some of you were even born. It, is, it, it seems like just yesterday to me, uh, but it's actually been a pretty long time. And the iPhone, when it came out, was this groundbreaking thing. There were, there were precursors to, cursors to smartphones, and they had all these buttons on them. And you could kind of connect to the internet, and you could kind of get your email. Uh, but they didn't work that great. But the iPhone was going to be the thing that changed everything. And one of the things about the iPhone when it came out was that it was going to be a carrier exclusive for, for a period of time at the beginning, meaning that there was only going to be one phone carrier who was able to sell it. And so the, the win for the phone carrier, whoever won the bid to be the exclusive carrier of this phone, was that they would probably be able to attract all these new customers who were willing to take AT&T's network so that they could have the phone because Apple brought with it these loyal followers that would buy literally anything that they put out. And so AT&T won the bid to be the exclusive carrier of the iPhone. But of course, nothing like this had, had been done before on this scale. This phone was going to use internet in people's daily lives in a way that none of our phones were actually utilizing internet, which means there was going to be increased traffic, which, means, which meant AT&T was going to need to, to beef up their, their towers and their networks to be able to accommodate this new thing. And of course you have Apple and AT&T who are these two kind of corporate titans now having to work together to produce this thing. And Apple doesn't know anything about phone networks and AT&T doesn't know anything about producing phone hardware and so they're having to learn these things together and they're they're having regular clashes, and, and there are stories from that time where, where they regularly decided that they were going to part ways and not work with each other anymore. But the two boards of AT&T and Apple had this 
big upcoming meeting. And the AT&T execs, because there had been a lot of difficulty going on, a lot of friction between them, they made the humble suggestion to the Apple execs that perhaps things might go more smoothly if Apple wore suits to the meeting. And Apple had this famous reply to that request to wear suits to this corporate meeting. They said, we're Apple. We don't wear suits. We don't even own suits. But AT&T's idea was that perhaps we'll be able to bridge this gap between the two corporate cultures of our business trying to to launch into this joint adventure, uh, joint adventure, joint venture, if we get the folks at Apple to follow the rules of corporate America and dress for success. Well, we all know how the story ends. They were eventually able to put things out, and AT&T was able to build their network, and Apple was able to sell $800 billion worth of phones, and now you can have that phone on any carrier You want. But that's what we want to talk about this morning as it relates to our work. We want to talk about the idea of dressing for success. Did you know that the Bible actually gives principles for dressing for success in your work? I bet you didn't know that. But let's go to the Bible and you'll see what I'm talking about in just a moment. If you're there in Titus chapter 2, look with me at verses 9 and 10. 9 and 10. Here's what the Word of God says. Bondservants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. You see here in that last phrase of that last verse that we just read, the idea of adorning the doctrine of God our Savior in our work. The Bible does indeed tell us how to dress for work, but it doesn't have anything to do with whether you wear a suit or whether you wear the standard Apple outfit, which is Levi's a black turtleneck, and white tennis shoes. It doesn't matter whether you wear scrubs or it doesn't matter whether you work from home and wear the thing that you wore the last four days because no one saw you, right? And it doesn't matter. You can wear the same clothes over and over again. It's not about actually how we dress for work that the Bible is talking about. Rather, the Bible is saying that the way we work determines, to some degree, how the gospel is perceived by others. The way you work, the way you carry out your work in your everyday life, can serve to, as the scripture passage tells us, either make the gospel appear beautiful to the people around you, or the way we work can serve, on the flip side, to make the gospel ugly to the people around us. And you've probably seen it, right? You have probably seen people who claim to be Christians 
and yet their testimony in their work makes the gospel ugly. I certainly experienced that in my own work. Uh, not referring to the people I work with here since that's such a small number of people. <laughs> not pointing the finger in a passive-aggressive way at the people I work with here at the church, but at the job that I, jobs I've held in the past. And you've probably experienced that too. The Greek word here for adorn, and I don't pull Greek words out very often, but I'm going to here. The Greek word for adorn here is the Greek word kosmeo. And when you hear that word kosmeo, you might hear an English word in there, cosmetic, that's derived from that word. But the dictionary, the Greek dictionary, says of that word, it's got a couple of different definitions. It means to put in order as so as to appear neat or well-organized, or the other definition is to cause something to have an attractive appearance through decoration. And that's what the Bible is talking about here. The way we carry out our work can make the gospel have an attractive appearance to the people around us. Which is why I'd like to consider this truth today. Good work makes the gospel beautiful. Good work makes the gospel beautiful. Now let's talk for a moment about what kinds of of work we might have in mind because there are different kinds of work and there are different kinds of situations that we have present in this room. Some of us work and get paid for that work. Others of us work in hopes that one day we might get paid for that work. And others of us work knowing that we will never get paid for that work. Some of us are in jobs that are that are high paying. Some of us are in jobs that are barely minimum wage. Some of us have work to do that we barely have enough hours to to fit the work into. Others of us can barely get enough hours. There are there are people whose work people here uh, young people who are students and your work is your school where you actually pay other people so that you can do your work. There are all kinds of work represented in this room. But when we do our work, the way the Bible instructs us to do our work, whether that's paid or unpaid work, the stakes are higher than we might think. Because the way we carry out our work either serves to make the gospel attractive or it can make it an ugly thing. Now, there's an issue that we need to talk about as we think about this passage of Scripture here because you may have noticed that these instructions are presented to a group of people called bond servants. What are bond servants? Well, bond servant is a fancy way of talking about people who were slaves. And there is a, a scholar by the name of Ben Witherington who, who paints a picture for us that I would just want to share with you briefly of what slavery looked like in the Roman Empire at this time. And my, my purpose in doing this is not to contrast slavery in the Roman Empire with the slavery that is 
keen on our country's reputation and past, but there were two key differences between the slavery in the Roman Empire at the time and the slavery that's part of our country's past. Our country's past slavery was race-based slavery, and this was not. Furthermore, our country's uh, experience with slavery was that of of man-stealing, and this was not always the case. In fact, our country's experience with with slavery uh, is making use of man-stealing, which is something that the, the Old Testament actually prohibited on pain of death. So there are some differences between our conceptions uh, of what slavery looked like in our country and the slavery that appeared that appeared on the scene in the Roman Empire. But here are some here's a little bit more of a teased out description of what slavery looked like then. One of the things that might enlighten us and, and open our eyes to the importance of this and why something like this would be included in Paul's instructions to Titus as he talks about how to disciple these new Christians, one of the things that we need to understand is that a full third of the Roman Empire was composed of slaves. One out of every three people in the Roman Empire was a slave, and so it makes sense why there would be instructions to this group of people that sprinkled throughout the letters of Paul as they're working out how to live out the Christian life as as believers and followers of Jesus. Slaves were, in the words of Aristotle, living property, and they were people who were often without legal rights. Now, in a moment, we'll talk about some of the rights that they did have, but from a legal perspective, most slaves did not have rights. And there were slaves in the Roman Empire who worked in absolutely deplorable and abusive conditions. There was a, 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 a whole industry of mining that was, that was basically worked by slaves. And the slaves who worked in the mines worked in deplorable conditions. On the other hand, the slavery in the Roman Empire allowed slaves oftentimes to own property. Slaves were able to earn money on the side through their own businesses at times. They were able to uh, actually earn enough money to, if they so desired, purchase their freedom eventually. And so there were some slaves who chose to purchase their freedom, but there were some slaves who chose not to purchase their freedom. They chose to remain in that situation because the situation they were in was much better than anyone that they could go to. You see, there were slaves in the Roman Empire who who were skilled tradesmen, architects, people who worked in politics, people who worked in civil matters, uh, people who were teachers and artisans. So there was this, this whole spectrum that's quite unfamiliar to us as we try to do our best to enter into a world that's far different from our own. But I hope that at least paints for you the picture of the kinds of people that would have been living in the island of Crete, uh, off the coast of Greece, who had become Christians. Some of these slaves then, in a variety of these positions, had believed the good news of the gospel, which was a radical message. 
And here's why it was a radical message. They believed things like Paul had written in Galatians chapter 3 and verse 28, where he says things like this. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. You're used to hearing that verse, probably. If you come from a Christian background, you've heard that verse a thousand times, and so it doesn't have an impact on you. But try, try to put yourself in the shoes of a person living in the first century and hearing that. Think about living where a third of the population are slaves without rights. Think about the rights of women in the Roman Empire, which are pretty slim. And then you hear the message of the gospel, which says radical things like this. What are we supposed to do with this? What does this mean? Well, we know what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that when a person comes to Christ, every distinction between people is automatically obliterated. It didn't mean that when you become a Christian, you become genderless, or you have no sort of ethnicity anymore, or no socioeconomic strata anymore. It doesn't necessarily mean a change in any of those things, but it was a radical enough message to say that whether you are a man or a woman, whether you are a Jew or a Greek, And whether you are a slave or a free person, you're all equal in Christ and one in Christ. Not only is that radical, it's offensive. Do you mean to tell me that 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 person over there that performs that menial task is my equal? I don't think so. And that's something that could make the gospel difficult for people to swallow because it radically uh, uh, equalized the playing field. Okay, now let me take it. Let me take it a step even further than that, just to try to. The Bible's not as abrasive for us sometimes as, as it I think it's meant to be. Okay, so so you're living on Crete. Now I'm a guy who's lived, in, uh, lived a, a privileged position over women my entire life. My culture tells me that I'm more important than women. And now the Bible has to come along and say, well, that's actually not true. And then it says, oh, and by the way, you're on equal footing with a slave. Okay, this is a lot. Oh, and then by the way, you're going to gather together to worship the Jesus that unified you, but you're not going to be able to do it in men-only churches or women-only churches or free people churches or or slave-only churches. You guys are going to have to do that together. And by the way, it's not going to be in this giant auditorium where you can slip in and be in the side of the auditorium where just the men or just the women or just the slaves or just the free people are. No, you're actually going to be meeting in somebody's house. Just put yourself in that situation in the first century where you're a person who has been used to privilege. You're a person on this other side who has used to been being looked down on. You may not even have the rights of the same person. And now you're coming together to worship 
in a common faith in which you are brothers and sisters in Christ where there's no slave or free, male or female, Jew nor Greek. I mean, you want to talk about the gospel message just picking up the table and flinging it everywhere. That's the kind of stuff that's happening. And, and, and the, the Bible is not abrasive enough for us if we don't recognize the kind of things that are going on there. So these slaves have experienced an inner freedom. A freedom that is not necessarily matched by their outward circumstances. What are they to do? The slave that is there worshiping with the free person in that home, what are they to do now? How are they to live? Well, the Apostle Paul does not counsel them to a slave revolt, although there may be circumstances in which that sort of thing is justified. But but here, this was was not the play. They were powerless to free themselves. This This is an institution which could not be changed in this way. So what does the Apostle Paul tell them to do? He basically says, go back to work on Monday. Go back to work on Monday. At work on Monday in a completely different way. Work in such a way that makes the gospel beautiful. That if someone was to look at you and see the way the gospel impacts the way you work, they would at least have to step back and pause and say, what's going on here? Now, of course, we don't have the same culture here in 21st century America. And so what we have here is an argument from the lesser, uh, from the greater to the lesser. If Paul would give these kinds of instructions that we're going to walk through in just a moment, if he would give these kind of instructions to bondservants, to slaves, then then how much more do these apply to us living in 21st century America with the benefit of HR departments and filing of grievances and all sorts of things that we have in our workplaces today? The Bible in our text gives us Five ways our work can serve your work, whether it's paid or unpaid, can serve to make the gospel beautiful. And we want to walk through them briefly this morning. First, good work makes the gospel beautiful when we are submissive. Not our favorite term. Especially because everyone's boss is an idiot, right? Nobody has ever had a boss that knew what they were doing. The Bible tells us that we are to be submissive in our work. Submission is at its core an attitude of the heart. And the Bible tacks even two words that go along with submissive that that make it even worse. The Bible says we're to be submissive in everything. Now, of course, submissive and everything excludes categories where your boss may be asking you to sin 
Uh, all of us, myself included, have been in positions, I'm sure, where our boss has asked us to do something that's unethical. Okay, I've been asked before to take the numbers and the report that I'm supposed to present. Not here. Uh, just to differentiate, I worked in a marketing company for 13 years before I was here. I was asked to, to take the numbers and find a way for the numbers to tell a different story. And boy, is that easy to do because you can use numbers all kinds of ways to tell the story that you want to tell. And that's the great thing about numbers is they can tell whatever story you want. And you may have been asked to do things like that. And so we're not to be submissive. There are certain things that we can't do. But excluding those kinds of things, we need to be submissive to the people who are our bosses in everything that's within the scope of their authority to us. In fact, that should be, that should be the bent of our hearts, to be submissive to what they ask. Secondly, we are to be, as much as lies within us, well-pleasing. To please the people we work for. Now, this isn't always possible. Once again, I've had bosses who were impossible to please. It did not matter how much you gave them, they wanted more. It did not matter how many hours you gave them, they wanted more. They thought that if they worked a million hours a week, then everybody ought to work a million hours a week and have no life. That sort of thing certainly happens. We don't have control over the actual pleasing of the boss. The only thing we have control over is our own actions towards them. In our work, we want to desire to please, not necessarily because our bosses are good at managing or because they know what they're talking about or because they're fair or whatever, but because that's what God asks us to do. Listen to this from Colossians chapter 3, verses 23 and 24, because this can revolutionize the way you do your work. Colossians chapter 3, verses 23 and 24 says this, Whatever you do, work heartily. That means give it everything you've got. Whatever you do, work heartily. And here's the key phrase, as for the Lord and not for men. If you're working heartily is tied to the competence of your boss, the fairness of your boss, the willingness of your boss to hear your perspectives, the reasonableness of them, all the sorts of things that we want from good employers but often don't get. If, if, if my work is tied to them, then my work is constantly going to fluctuate based on how I'm evaluating them. But the Bible says, no, you need to look beyond that person and do your work heartily as unto the Lord and not unto them. Knowing, verse 24, that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You're serving the Lord Christ. How much of an attitude adjustment might it be for you to go to work tomorrow, or stay at home for work tomorrow, or do whatever it is that you do in your labor tomorrow, if you believed that what you were ultimately doing is serving the Lord Christ. I think that would revolutionize the way some of us work. Number three, 
Good work makes the gospel beautiful when we are agreeable. (laughs) Not argumentative. We all know the person, and maybe you are that person, where when the boss approaches you to ask you to do something, she braces for an argument because she knows she's going to get one. Does your boss have to brace himself every time that he interacts with you knowing that he's in for a fight? Are you the kind of person that's constantly argumentative behind the boss's back and the Slack channels or the email chains or on the water cooler? I mean, what else is a break room for? The break room is not for breaks. The break room is for going in and complaining to the people that you work with about the people that you work for. Everybody knows that's what a break room is about. And if you don't participate in that, in the break room, you're the odd person out. What are you, some kind of weirdo that stands up for the people we work for? What's wrong with you? And yet the Bible says that when, a gospel, when the gospel changes a person's heart, when we do our work, our fundamental attitude is of being agreeable rather than argumentative. Fourth, we make the gospel beautiful when we're honest in our work. Our text says, not pilfering. Not pilfering here. The idea in this word pilfering is is obviously, or maybe not obviously, the idea of theft. But this word for theft is not like the Enron level theft. We're not talking billions. We're not talking millions. We're not talking necessarily these large-scale embezzlements or the stealing of, of, of major pieces of property that belong to your work. The idea of pilfering is the idea of kind of skimming. And and there's all kinds of creative ways to do this. And there's also all kinds of creative ways to justify the doing of it. So let's start with the justifying of the doing of it. The justifying of the doing of it is, man, there's all this extra stuff, and I'm not treated well anyway, and what do they want, and nobody's going to notice, and what would it hurt if I do X, Y, or Z. Maybe take a little bit here, a little bit there. I mean, one of the things that we are sometimes good at stealing is time. Finding a way to look busy, to run the clock, without doing a whole lot. Imagine being a slave. Imagine the sense of entitlement you might have Being a slave, if I'm mistreated, the least they can do for me is look the other way while I take. And yet, the Apostle Paul says, hey, teach teach these folks as the gospel moves in, starts to change lives, teach them that we're the kinds of people, gospel people are honest in their work. Not just honest large scale, honest small scale. 
honest in the things that will never be missed and in the things that will never be noticed. We're different. Fifthly, we're to be sincere in our work. This is the idea behind showing good faith. It says, but showing all good faith there at the, uh, uh, in the middle of verse 10. That term good faith is a term that shows up in legal jargon in business dealings sometimes. You make a, a good faith offer on something, meaning that person is going to hold that thing that you intend to buy because they believe that you're acting in good faith, that you are going to have the, you're going to have the, uh, the means to purchase this or to enter into an agreement, and, and it might all go wrong, but it's not because the people, either of the parties, weren't acting in good faith. To act in good faith is to be sincere in our dealings, to not have a hidden agenda without the desire to defraud or deceive. These are five, five ways that we can make the gospel beautiful or ugly in the way that we work. That's, of course, not an exhaustive list. But I hope it gets you thinking about your own work. And what it is that you do. And what it, look, you, what it looks like for you as a, as a gospel person, a person who has believed the good news of Jesus to adorn the doctrine of God in the way that you work. But there's something even deeper going on here than these principles of how we might carry out our work in a way that makes the gospel beautiful. You see, what's interesting here, as we're remembering the context, we're remembering that these are instructions given to slaves. What's interesting here that we might not see in our first read-through is that the gospel message restores a certain power, a certain purpose, a certain dignity to even slaves. People who had no say, people who tended to have no rights, people to whom Aristotle referred to as living property, And yet the gospel restores power to them in that they are now able to participate in the spread of this message that is tearing through the Roman Empire like wildfire. And yes, even the people who are slaves have something to contribute. They can go to work, even work in the most menial tasks. Their work is now infused with a purpose it did not once have, not, uh, they did not realize it had. Because they have the opportunity to adorn, to make beautiful the doctrine of Christ. Imagine, imagine some of the radical change that might have taken place in some of these individuals. The way they carried themselves and the way they acted before and after Jesus. Imagine 
being the master and seeing someone who was argumentative, skimming, not pleasing, not submissive, and all of a sudden there's this change that's taking place. And that, and maybe asking why. What has happened to you? And imagine a slave telling the master, I was freed. The gospel restored dignity to their work. And even the most humble tasks. And I say to us this morning that the gospel also empowers you. It gives purpose to your work. It gives dignity to your work. Some of us do work that we find incredibly fulfilling, for the most part. Some of us wake up each day glad that we get to do the thing that we want to do. And for those of you who are able to do that, that is a wonderful blessing that you get to do up, get up and, and do something that you enjoy. Other, others of us wake up on Monday and are well aware that it is Monday. And we've got a long way to go till Friday. Some of us don't get paid for our work, as I've said. Some of us do work that is not particularly rewarding. It's just something that we have to do. Some of us work in conditions in which we are disrespected, belittled, undervalued. All of us live at a great distance from Eden. I remind you that work was not supposed to be this way. In Eden, we were to use the materials of creation. The image of God was was active and alive in us so that we could tend and plant and water and build and create and invent and design to to make full use of God's image in us, to use the materials of creation to act like God in creation. But when we introduced sin into creation, when we decided to rebel against God, one of the fundamental aspects of our life was cursed or work. And so we have slaves. And the cursed creation curses, infects us so that as people, the very ground we work with rebels against us. And the very people we work with betray us. As Americans, we ask a lot of our work. We ask our work to provide us with an identity, whether you get paid for it or not. We ask our work to tell us who we are. We ask our work to help us hold our head high 
as we, were, as we walk through crowds of people, because we know what we do. We ask our work to give us our status. There are certain jobs that you say, that you do, and people are like, wow. It affords a status to us. Pastor's not one of them, I found. <laughs> it gets you left alone at a party very quickly. <laughs> Thanks for the warning. Our work, we ask it to not only be our means of meeting our needs, but mostly we ask it to acquire our multitude of never-ending wants. And as Americans, we've got a long list of stuff that we want. And one of the frustrations with our job is that it just never seems to fulfill us getting the list. But we're not slaves, right? You sure? See, I think as Americans, we are often slaves to our work. Because we have asked work to be our master... And we have made our work our God. And we go to work every week and worship with passion. So that our master can give us more. The gospel is intended to change that. The gospel is intended to free us from slavery to our work so that it has its proper place and that we can enjoy our work, be empowered in our work, have purpose in our work, have dignity in our work in a totally new way. The gospel is intended to change the way we work because as the next verses say in verses 11 to 13, they say, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, verse 13, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. What the Bible is doing here is reminding us that there is a present age in which we inhabit, but this is not the only age. And what we do here and our work here is not the only thing that's real. And there is, in fact, a very real kingdom coming that is already here in mystery form that is growing in ways that you cannot see every day or it's growing in ways that you cannot see each day and one day the appearing of the glory of our God and Savior is going to come and it is going to change everything. If you are a first century Roman slave, many of you do not have the promise of upward mobility. And maybe the promise of upward mobility isn't actually necessary for you to be happy 
for you to have purpose, and for your work to have dignity. When you go to work tomorrow, or do you work to do your work tomorrow, remember that. There's more here than the eye can see. So we serve our Lord Christ. That's how you dress for success. If you're here with us this morning and you don't know Christ, one of the things that he regularly does for Americans in our culture is he frees us from slavery to our work. The Bible tells us that we are slaves to sin in its 31 flavors. And yet Jesus frees us from slavery to sin and, and draws us to himself. And you can be freed from your slavery to sin this morning if you will repent of those sins and turn in faith to Jesus. Your work can't deliver you the good life. Jesus can. Will you trust him to do that? Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for ancient truths from the first century in a culture that we don't know that can massively impact who we are today. You have spoken to us this morning. Lord, we hear your voice. As people who have been changed by the gospel, I pray that you would help us to be people who, who see another kingdom, who are living for the appearing, and who are serving you willingly and joyfully as our Lord and Master now. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.